Let's pray. Lord, your word is good. Lord, you are good. There's no heart beyond your reach. There's no person that you do not know, that you cannot draw. So, Lord, we pray that you would draw many to you this season. Lord, your word is potent, sharper than any two-edged sword. Pray, Lord, that it would divide. It would point out to us our shortfalls, and we would learn, and we would apply your word to our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to dive into some soteriology today. Are you ready for that? Now we're going to study the study of salvation. God's plan of salvation. It's a plan of immense detail. We're talking about a God who, who knit together every person, knows the, every sparrow and when it falls, knows the number of hairs on your head. We're, we're talking about a God who is so sovereign that he still works out this plan of salvation, giving us a free will, a free will that is diametrically opposed to him, and he still works out his plan of salvation for you and for me. No detail without reason, all fitting together, established before the foundations of the earth, as we learn in Ephesians chapter 1. And the the apex of this plan is the person and works of Jesus Christ in history. I say in history because it's not just good storytelling as we go through this series in Matthew. This morning's passage is is just a few weighty verses that describe to us the nature of the birth of our Savior. Verses that that many, even in the realm of Christendom, in in churches, people who consider themselves Christians, they they look at these verses and they they consider it the, the stuff of good stories or legends. Certainly not history, is it? It's the fantastic. It's designed to hold our attention, but not vital or necessary. Is the virgin birth necessary? If so, why? Why, as Christians, should we have to hold claim to so unbelievable an idea? I mean, a virgin, by definition, can't be pregnant, right? We're going to examine three things from our passage today. First, the name of Jesus. Secondly, the necessity and evidence of the virgin birth. And thirdly, the response of Joseph and Mary. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1, starting at verse 18. Let's stand up for the reading of God's word. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, it says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man, a righteous man, and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. 
But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. The reading of God's word. Thank you very much. Go ahead and be seated. Verse 18, it says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ, the birth of Jesus. And in verse 21, we read, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. God sent an angel to Joseph to ensure a few things, one of which was the name of the child to be born. And that name was to be very specific. It was Jesus, for he would save his people from their sins. There, there, there's such deep, rich significance in this name. The, the name Jesus itself is a form of Joshua. Yahweh saves is what Jesus means, or Yahweh is salvation. As I just mentioned, here we read that the angel describes why his name would be Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. Psalm 130, verses 7 and 8 says, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is, a, there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Isaiah 53 Verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Is the Lord concerned with their circumstances on earth? How bad a day they had at work or, or, or the trial they might go, be going through? Yes, the Lord is concerned about those things, but what is he really concerned about? Our sins, our iniquities, our shortfalls. And he repeats this throughout the Old Testament as he's talking to his people. There's something you need to be saved from. And it's not your temporal situation. Matthew, in the book that we're studying right now, Jesus' own words, he says to us, The Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, throughout Scripture, God is far more concerned with our sin, our iniquities, our falling short of his perfection, and our wandering away from him. He's concerned about this far and above our difficult circumstances in this fallen world. He knows it's a fallen world. We know it's a fallen world. We know it's going to be hard. The name of Jesus reminds us that God has provided a salvation for us in this fallen world from our sins. He's provided salvation in Jesus on our 
behalf. Not from our temporal situations, not from Roman oppression or bad day at work, but from our sins, from that which separates us from God, from that which oppresses us and keeps us from eternal life. God wants us not just to have a pleasant life on this earth that may last a few years, but he wants us to have everlasting life right there with him, reconciled to him, worshiping right before him, knowing him as we are known. The Jews in in this day of Matthew might have desired salvation from Rome, but God sent them a savior from an even greater oppression that they could have done nothing about, that we can do nothing about our sin. He sent the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one for all mankind, as we discussed in out of last week's passage, fulfilling that Abrahamic covenant. He's the son of Abraham. Jesus is a name rich with meaning concerning our salvation. And yet it's a very common name. At the time that you could have gone into a room and said, hey, Jesus, and you would have had 10 people turn around. Yeah? It wasn't an uncommon name at the time. Many point to this as an implication of the accessibility of Jesus to anyone who would come to him. It was a name rich with significance and yet so common. Isaiah 53 points out to us that there would be no form or majesty that we would be drawn to him. His name was not outstanding from anyone else. And yet it was a name so rich with meaning. that It was significant yet so common that, that shepherds and kings alike would be free to come before him. Jesus in our passage is also called the Christ. He's called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Verse 23, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. How is this? How can it be that this child to be born would be God with us, would be Emmanuel? Well, enter the significance of the virgin birth into history. This child who was to be born would be both God and man. 100% man, 100% God. Isaiah 9.6 For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He was a child born implying his humanity. He was to be called Mighty God. How can you mistake that for anything else other than Mighty God? That's just what he would be. Fully human, fully God here on earth. According to our author right here in our passage today, that's exactly what we have. We have in Matthew 1.16. Uh, look at 1.16 with me. It says... And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Joseph, the husband of Mary, 
of whom Jesus is born. Jesus was born of a woman. He had flesh, just like you and I. Born of Mary, having flesh. He was a man. Verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Verse 20, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. He is God in the flesh. Why? Why must he be the God-man? Why does Jesus have to be Emmanuel, God with us? Well, the sacrifice that Jesus would eventually make at the cross had to fulfill a, a few different things. It had to be both equal and infinite eternal. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross in our place had to be both equal and infinite eternal. In its equality, in order for the sacrifice of Christ to pay for the sins of a man, Jesus had to be a man. See, they were they, the sheep weren't cutting it. Sheep didn't equal to a man. They had to perpetually do these things over and over and over again, and they, they were mere, a mere foreshadowing, a mere type of what we really needed. The sacrifice had to be tempted just as we are. Man for man. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 to 17 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood... He himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps. He didn't come as an angel. But he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He had to be made like us in every respect, fully human, equal in every way, in order to provide a proper and appropriate, correct sacrifice on the cross in our place. Had to be man for man. But it also had to be infinite. The sacrifice had to have an, an eternal value to it. See, the, the value of one finite man is one finite man. So who's he going to choose? Unless the sacrifice has more value than that. A mere man could logically die in the place of only one mere man. In order for the sacrifice of Christ to cover the sins of anyone who would come to him, past, present, and future, for all the sins that, that we have committed, past, present, and the ones he even knows is to come, in order for Jesus to pay the price of our infinite debt against an infinite God, the sacrifice would have to have infinite, eternal 
value. Therefore, God did not send just any man to take our place. He sent his son, born of the Holy Spirit and of the woman. He sent his son who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We also see in Colossians chapter 2, in him, in Jesus, the fullness, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, it's reiterated to us, He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He, Jesus, upholds the universe by His word of power, by the word of His power. This is His own power. Jesus holds everything together by that. He is not partially God. He is not half God, but he is fully God, the whole fullness of deity dwelling on earth, infinite and eternal. So now we have an equal sacrifice and an infinite eternal sacrifice for us. But the the sacrifice also had to be perfect, didn't it? According to Exodus, first Passover, what were the directions from God to Moses? Your lamb shall be without blemish, perfect. Exodus 12.5. Needed to be tempted, but without sin, as we're told in Hebrews chapter 4.15. But aren't all men born in sin? Doesn't King David even say that he was conceived in sin from the moment of his conception he had sin in him? We come out of the womb, sinners. If that is so, then Jesus couldn't have been without sin in his flesh and the sacrifice is null and void, right? Unless, unless there's a virgin birth, See, it was, we, we all have sin, but sin is passed down to us from our fathers. It is passed down from father to his children. It was Adam who was responsible for the sin in the garden. If you go back to Genesis chapter 3, go over there, Genesis chapter 3. Look with me at uh, chapter 3, verse 6 and 7. It says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, 
And it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise. She took of the fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together. When were their eyes opened? After Eve ate, right? No, after Adam ate. Adam was the responsible party. After Adam ate and didn't step up and step in and say, no, we aren't to do this, that's when their eyes were opened. He ate. Verses 17 and 19 in that same chapter, Genesis 3, it says, and to Adam, this is when they're getting punished for this sin, to Adam, God said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. Because Adam ate, because of Adam's sin, the curse came upon this earth, and the earth is fallen in sin. And because of the sin of Adam... Till you return to the ground, for from it you were taken, and you are dust, and to dust you shall return. What came into life? Death. Because of the sin of Adam. He did not lay that down upon Eve. He did not lay that down upon the serpent. He laid that punishment down upon Adam. The curse of the earth and the curse of death. Those came from Adam. Romans chapter 15. Verse 12 says, Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. If we look at the genealogy of Matthew chapter 1, we see Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah, all these father of, father of, father of, father of, until you get to Joseph. Verse 16 of chapter 1, it says, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. The father of, the father of, the father of, the husband of. Sin was passed down, passed down, passed down, passed down, until we get to Jesus being born, not of Joseph, not of an earthly father, but of a perfect heavenly father. He was conceived of the spirit and of Mary. And then Joseph named Jesus and thus accepted that child as his own, including Jesus then into his family line, into the line of David. But he was not the biological father, so his innate sin did not pass down to the child, thus giving us perfect, sinless sacrifice in Jesus because Jesus was born of the Spirit and of Mary. The virgin birth is, is so overwhelmingly significant to our salvation. It provides for Emmanuel, a God-man to be born. It provides for that equal yet infinite eternal sacrifice in our place. It provides for a perfect, blemishless, sin-free sacrifice on our behalf. Without a virgin birth, 
We have no salvation because we have none of those things. Is the virgin birth important? Yeah. Yeah, it is. And God has magnificently planned out all of these things. And, and, and yet, God doesn't just say things to us and say, okay, here's something crazy, now accept it. He, he gives us, he, he still condescends to provide us with even more proof. If, if the sheer logic of it all doesn't get to us, then, then how about this? How about some prophecy fulfilled? Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity. This is back at the fall and, and the bringing of the curses for our sin. I will put enmity, he says to the woman, between you, I, no, he says this to the servant, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And in this we see a virgin birth. We do? Yes, we do. It says her offspring, not Adam's offspring, her offspring. And that word offspring is singular. There is one offspring of a woman who is to come and he will crush the head of the serpent. Amen. Isaiah 7.14, a little more clear for those of us who aren't catching 3.15. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. A virgin shall conceive and shall bear God, man, on earth. If prophecy fulfilled isn't enough for you, we have the man Joseph He's, he's said in our passage here today to be a righteous man, a just man, a man who seeks after God and God's own word. He would obey the Lord's word. One who, wa- who walks and acts in accord with the will and the law of God. And according to Deuteronomy 22, verse 23, Mary's to be stoned to death because she was found to be illegitimately pregnant outside of marriage. That was the worst possible case scenario of punishment. But at the very least, according to the Mishnah, that uh, Jewish oral tradition that was later written down, she would have to at least be given a bill of divorce. She was considered forbidden to her husband-to-be. And so as a righteous man, Joseph would have separated himself from her. He would have given her a bill of divorce. What could have changed this man's mind to step away from the will of God Almighty and marry this woman. What would have done that? It would have taken a visit from an angel to change his mind, as, as this would have been, the, the effect of having married her would have been carried with him for the rest of his life. They could have been put out of the synagogue. All kinds of terrible, hard, life-changing things could have happened to them. And he took her to be his wife. God would not have used such a situation, would he? Or, or, or such a peasant girl? Why? Do you, do you remember those four women in the, in the genealogy we read last week? Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba? Do you remember their pasts, their histories? One was a prostitute. Another pretended to be a prostitute. Three of them were, were Gentiles. One from a nation that God cursed, the Moabites. Would God use them? They're in that genealogy, aren't they? 
Yes, God would use them. I believe they are there as an evidence to this end that God would use such a peasant girl as Mary. If God would use them, why wouldn't he use Mary? Who are we to tell God who or what he will use? Is a virgin birth unimaginable? Not for God it isn't. Luke 1, 34 to 37 says, And Mary said to the angel, How will this be? See, Mary had the same problem. How will this be since I'm a virgin? It can't be, Lord. The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the angel to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is, her, this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. How can this be? Nothing is impossible with God. This, this whole situation reinforces the fact that our salvation is not the will of man, but is the act of God on our behalf. John 1.13, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man but of God. Our salvation does not come from us or our goodness or the good things that we do. We do not earn our salvation before God. It is an act of God, and he gives it to us in such a way that we know this can't be us. This can't be the act of man. This is a virgin birth. We can't do that, but God can. So how do we respond to such a knowledge? That God has done this. God has worked all this out for me. For you. By name. Who he knows the number of hairs on your head. Or the lack thereof. God has done this for me that I could be reconciled to him. How am I to respond to such knowledge? When Joseph heard the words of the angel, when he heard what, what God's will was, how did he respond? He, he could have said, but, but this isn't how I thought my life should go, Lord. I, I mean, really, this isn't what I wanted out of my life. I didn't see it going this way. But he didn't. He responded in awe-filled obedience. What Joseph wanted more than his own will was the will of God to be worked out through him. And when I realized just what God has done for me, Jesus becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross, the most horrific means of death man has ever devised. Prolonged, painful agony in my place. 
when I see God's detailed and amazing plan of salvation coming together for me? How do I respond when he asks me to be or to do or to walk in certain ways? When I read in his word that I am to go in this way and and be conformed to the image of Jesus and to begin to, to put the sin away and take that out of my life and walk in this way, how do I respond to him when I see and I have such wonderful knowledge, knowledge that is too wonderful for me? Do I, do I listen? And respond in obedience like Joseph did, even if it makes my life a little less comfortable? How did Mary respond? We see that in Luke chapter 1 again, verses 46 to 55. Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. When God commands, do we break into song like Mary did? When God says, that hidden sin in your life, put it away. Be mine. Do we say, Father, you are holy. You are good. You are God. You are almighty. Yes. Or do we gripe and complain? "Ah, That isn't what I wanted to do. Do we make excuses as to why we didn't need to apply this verse or that command from Scripture? A child will be born fully human. His name will be Jesus, for he will save his people not from temporal circumstances, but from their sins. How can he do this? He'll be born of a virgin, Fulfilling prophecy that he would be found without sin of his own. That he would be Emmanuel, the fullness of deity dwelling bodily amongst us. That he would be a perfect sacrifice of equal and infinite eternal value. Therefore, let us recognize the wonder and majesty of God's plan of salvation set in order on our behalf knowledge that is too wonderful for me. In awe of God, let us walk in obedience to his word as we hear it, as we read it. And let's not ignore reading it so that we then don't have to apply it. Lord, I didn't know. Let us come to Jesus for salvation from our sins and and reconciliation to our perfect and holy God and creator. Let's pray. Father God, would you please, by your Holy Spirit, continue to apply your word to our lives and our hearts. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to respond in obedience 
as Joseph responded in obedience, as Mary responded in obedience, Lord, you have worked out a miraculous, amazing salvation for us. And Lord, let us be in awe, truly in awe, stopped in our tracks, flat on our faces, praising you with holy hands lifted up that you might be glorified in our lives. Help us to have our focus in the right place on you and you alone, not in the trappings, not in the trappings of this holiday, but Lord, on the Savior that this holiday preaches. Not on the trappings of our services, but on your word that is declared, sung about, Would you be our focus, we pray in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.